Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll bow our heads together, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're uh, ready to study the word, that we're spiritually prepared. Uh, after con- at confession of sin, we recover our, our spiritual walk by the Holy Spirit. And so after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that at the end of a busy day, a time with many things going on in our lives, as we approach the holiday season when things always get a little more hectic, uh, family, travel, things of that nature, that we can focus upon your word. We know that there are many in this congregation who are facing significant health challenges, and we pray for them. We pray for their families as they take care of them. We pray that we, we might be aware of who these people are and that we might take time to talk to them and take time to minister to them uh, as we minister within the body of Christ. Father, we pray that you would uh, just strengthen each of us tonight as we study your word, that we might come to understand it better, and that we might be encouraged again just by your faithfulness, that no matter what we face in life, we know that you are still in control and that you are worthy of our trust and that we can relax in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans 11. Romans 11, we're continuing in this tremendous chapter that deals with the future of Israel. And I'm going to change the title from last week because I didn't quite get to the illustrations last time. But now we're looking at the dough, the lump of dough, and the olive branches. The dough and the olive branches, these two great illustrations of Israel and of God's grace and blessing. It's so important to understand these illustrations. As I've been reading in various commentaries and various other uh, sources, I have become aware of the fact that so many misidentify and they just don't deal with it textually. And that is so, so important. Um, this has always been a favorite passage of mine because I wrote a pretty lengthy paper on this when I was in the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary, and I was so pleased because my uh, one of my uh, <coughs> favorite professors read it and said, you need to send that in and get it published, which I did, and it was published. So, uh, But I've always enjoyed it. It's a crucial chapter, and it is really amazing how many people uh, really do miss this because we are, as evangelicals, we're so focused on salvation that we want everything to be about people getting justified. And I've kept emphasizing this all the way through Romans 9 through 11, that these chapters are 
really not about every individual Jew getting saved. They're not about Jews getting justified individually at all. It is about God's plan for Israel and the Jewish people and that he hasn't uh, abrogated or broken his covenant with Abraham and discarded his plan for them. That, If you understand that that's what he's talking about the, and interpret everything within that structure, then it makes more sense. And it's not saying in times where Paul is just leaves that, all of a sudden he's talking about people getting saved. And I'm going to point out from the illustration tonight that if he is talking about people getting saved, then we can lose our salvation. That's all I have to say about it so far. If this is about getting justified, then this passage is teaching that people can lose their justification. And it's not teaching that. That's not scriptural, so it can't be talking about getting justified. So as I pointed out before, Romans 11 answers the question, does, has God permanently cast away his people? And the answer is no, not at all, as Paul says. He still has a plan for national ethnic Israel. He hasn't replaced them. That's the essence. We studied that at the beginning of this section on replacement theology. God hasn't replaced them in a permanent sense. We live in an age that some have called the great parenthesis, that there is a pause in God's plan and purpose for Israel, and he is doing something in this age in relation to the Gentiles as a corporate entity, treating the Gentiles as a group and the Jews as a group, as corporate entities. God's doing something in the Gentiles in the world, but then he's going to return to that focus on Israel and that happens right after the rapture. The rapture occurs, the church is uh, taken out, and immediately after that, God goes back to his plan for Israel. And even though the rapture doesn't begin that tribulation period, a lot of people think it does, but the rapture is not the event that begins the tribulation. Tribulation is defined as a seven-year period, Daniel gives, in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, gives us a specific timetable for uh, the tribulation. Tells us what the event is that begins it, what happens in the middle, what happens at the end, what happens at the beginning is that the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. That starts things going again. God hit the pause button when uh, the Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah, and on the day of Pentecost, when the church began, God hit the pause button, and then he hits the play button at the instant of the rapture. And then there's going to be kind of a transition period, we don't know how long, between the uh, rapture and the time that the Antichrist signs that peace treaty. And I've gone through this before, talking about different transition periods. It's sort of like uh, Christ is the end of the law at the cross, but remember, the cross is on the day, of, the day of Passover, and the church doesn't start for 50 days until the day of Pentecost, meaning 50 days. So you've got a seven-week period there that's not church age, and technically it's not the age of the law. It's still sort of under the umbrella of Israel, though because the church doesn't begin until Pentecost. So it's a transition period that's not fully one dispensation, not the other, just sort of a hinge or transition period. 
Now, as a result of this new emphasis on the Gentiles, the question is raised um, in the early church because the early church at the time that Paul wrote, wrote Romans is probably 50-50 in terms at least. It might even have a higher percentage of Jewish Christians than Gentile Christians. Paul wrote Romans um, during his uh, third missionary journey. And so uh, that's still fairly early, around 55 or 56, maybe as early as 54. And so the temple's still standing in Jerusalem. He's still going to the synagogues first. He is still starting churches with a large Jewish component at the beginning. But then there's also a huge response from Jews. We know that there are, that there are four Jewish focused epistles in the New Testament. I bet you can't name them. What are the four Jewish epistles in the New Testament? What's the first one? Hebrews. Very good. First one is Hebrews, writing to a group that is primarily Jewish and coming out of a priestly background, but they had become believers, those who are they're living in the land. Then there's two other books that are written uh, to Jews, and they're, they have almost the same name, First and Second Peter. Peter is writing to those in the dispersion, the diaspora, uses that technical term. And uh, at the end of First Peter, he gives a greeting to all those in Babylon, which was the second largest Jewish community in the world, of largest outside of, outside of Israel itself. So you, in fact, there's been, one of these days we'll te- I'll teach through First Peter, but First Peter is, uh, and Second Peter, and then um, the other one is what? James, James, those are your four, they're, they're specifically addressed to Jewish believers. And so the early church has a, had a very strong Jewish component, and a lot of these Jewish background believers are asking the question, well, what exactly is God doing? In fact, Matthew, as we've studied in Matthew, this was one of the reasons Matthew wrote his gospel was to explain, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but What's going on? Because he came offering the kingdom, and now there's no kingdom. He's gone. He's gone back to heaven. What's what's going on? What happened to the kingdom? And that's that's Matthew's focus. So these are important themes and issues in the in the New Testament. And so in Romans 11, what Paul is describing is that yes, indeed, God has a future plan. God is always faithful to His promises. But he's not faithful to his promises always in the way we think he should be faithful to those promises. Because God's way, God's thinking is not our thinking. God's ways are not ours ways, our ways. He knows everything and he's accomplishing certain purposes that are just a little bit beyond our comprehension. So, uh, this is what Paul's explaining in Romans, uh, Romans 11. Now, we got down to about, uh, verse uh, 15 last time. 15 or 16, and I want to go back to just pick up the context in verse 11. And verse 11, he draws a conclusion from what he has said before. He says, I say then that they have stumbled, that uh, I say then have they stumbled that they should fall. And the question he's asking here is a repetition and development from the first question he asks, 
This whole chapter revolves around these two rhetorical questions. The first one in verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people in the sense of permanent? And he says no. And then the next question is, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, is this a permanent stumbling? And I put the Greek in here in blue letters and, and transliterated because I wanted to make sure you understood the difference when I say then, have they stumbled, which is just a tripping, a stumbling. It's not the same word for stumbling as we have over in Romans 9.32. That earlier, uh, Paul had said, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Totally different word for stumbling. It's, it, that, this has to do with with almost like a, 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 the word scandalizo. It's, a, it, it's something that they run into and they just, it causes them to fall down, whereas the word here, ptio, is more like just, just being tripped up a little bit. Uh, have they stumbled, in other words, did they trip up that they should fall, pipto, fall down and, and end it? So that's the idea in that, that opening question. And again, he responds like he did the first one, certainly not, not at all, but through their fall, parptoma. Now, see, that's a bad translation for parptoma there because it, it indicates through their fall that it's through their stumbling, but it identifies what's the problem. It's a transgression. They sin. Uh, transgression is one of several key words for sin. There's sin, iniquity, uh, and transgression. These are the three primary words used to describe sin, each uh, indicating something different. And so this is a violation of a commandment, uh, which is a commandment to accept the Messiah. So through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to think about something, because most everyone in here is a Gentile, that the reason God has brought salvation to Gentiles is to make Jews jealous of the blessing God has given to the Gentiles. It doesn't seem like that's working real well in the church age, does it? But it's amazing as I go back and I read through things in history, there have been periods in history when there's been large amounts of genuine, not forced in anti-Semitism, but genuine conversions within segments of the, of the Jewish Jewish community. But what's happening in 11, as we see as the chapter progresses, is Paul is beginning to shift from what's happening today, and the fulfillment of this really happens in the future during the tribulation period. That's when this really comes to its fruition. In verse uh, 12, he says, now, if their fall, that is, and what do we mean by their fall? That there indicates it's corporate. So it's not talking about individual Jews rejecting Jesus as a Messiah. It's talking about the nation rejects Jesus as a Messiah. So God removes them from being the primary source of blessing in the church age. That's what their fall is. It's their being removed from the primary source of blessing. And if that has become riches for the world, because what God did was when when he removes Israel from being in that primary place of blessing, 
God then brings the Gentiles in and pours out his blessing through the Gentiles, and the Gentiles become the primary source of blessing. Now ask me a, now answer a question for me. When God says that he's going to, to bless the world through the Gentiles, is he going to bless the world through every single Gentile? No. Is he going to, does that mean that most Gentiles are going to get saved? No. It's, it's, that's, that's another indication that God, the focus here is not on individuals. It's on this collective corporate, uh, unity. So if the corporate rejection of Christ means that God is going to open the floodgates of blessing to go th- through the Gentiles, Paul then says, how much more is there fullness going to be? How much more is there fullness? And I pointed out last time that to understand this word uh, pleroma here, we have to understand it in contrast uh, with the word um, uh, failure. And the word failure is a word that indicates also a, a corporate loss and removal from the, from the place of, um, removal from the place of blessing. The word here that is used, hetema, that is used for failure, where it says in their failure, their loss, is a word that refers to a, a military loss, a military loss and a defeat. It's not talking about every individual failing, it's talking about the, the, the army, as it were, the corporate entity lost the battle. And so as a result of that defeat by rejecting the Messiah, they're moved out of a place of, of, of blessing. But when they're restored to blessing, you know, the contrast there, so this is a wholeness comes back, then there will be even more blessing for the world. And then I pointed out last time there's a parenthesis, a, a break that occurs between 12 and 15, and 13 and 14 are a parenthetical side. Paul, Paul is making a point here, and I have another slide right here where I put the two together, and that the word at the beginning of verse 15, for if, that for is not explaining verse 14, it's going back to explain uh, what verse 12. Verse 12 says, if they're if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? And then verse 15 says, for if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Verse 15 continues and explains more the thought of verse 12, not verses 13, uh, 13 and 14. I pointed that out uh, last time. So... Verse 15 talks about the fact that they're cast away, but they're not cast away permanently. The, the illustration is going to be important for understanding that. They're just removed from being in this, uh, this point of, of, uh, this place of blessing. So the concept of, let me back up to this slide, the concept of failure there is, uh, the idea of defeat, uh, and being removed from that place of blessing, and then they're brought, then they're brought back. The word's only used one other time in the in New Testament. That's in First Corinthians six seven, which also refers to a military defeat. 
So what Paul wants us to understand here, in terms of the role of the Gentiles, let me go back a minute, pick up this slide. For, when he gives this aside, he says, look, I'm speaking to you as Gentiles, because the Roman church had some Jews in it, but it's mostly Gentiles. I'm speaking to you as Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them or deliver some of them. And what he means by that in verse 14 is that this is the, this is a, an objective for every evangelist. You didn't think about that. Whenever you are witnessing to somebody, there's a, another purpose besides helping them to understand the gospel so that they can go to heaven. It's so that with every Gentile that gets saved, it is to create a jealousy among the Jews. So that's a secondary purpose, according to what Paul is saying, that by any means, by showing God's grace to the Gentiles, that uh, Jews will eventually become jealous for a return to that place of blessing. So verse uh, 15, we looked at that there is also their acceptance will be life from the death. And so this is talking about their corporate position. So, uh, all tied in there. We covered all this last time. I'm just skipping ahead. Okay, now let's get to our illustration. illustration. Two illustrations, and these are important to understand. Both illustrations deal with an entire entity and then a part of that entity. Okay, the first entity has to do with a, a lump of dough. The second has to do with a tree. Uh, the first has to do with a lump of dough, and the second has to do with a tree. The tree is composed of roots and branches. So in the first illustration, he says, For if the first fruit, here's the word aparkin, uh, which indicates first the, the first fruit sacrifice from, from the Old Testament, the first fruit is the first part of the grain offering. Now, I was reading several commentaries, and there's some, I think this was an older term, but I read it in some modern ones to refer to it as a cereal offering. I've always had trouble when, they, when I read somebody calls the grain offering a cereal offering because I just can't quite get a vision of God sitting up in heaven eating Cheerios. So it, it's the grain, it's the beginning of the harvest. And the first, uh, the very beginning of the harvest, the best is what is then offered to God. It's taken and it's uh, made into dough and that bread is baked and then that is offered to God. And that first fruit is like the firstborn son that's dedicated. It's set apart to God. Now that doesn't mean it's, in the case of a firstborn son, does that mean that because the firstborn son is dedicated as a firstborn son, that they're saved, they're going to go to heaven? No. It's, it's a way of identifying the value within the family and setting apart the firstborn as from God, significant role that the firstborn plays or the first fruit plays, and that, that that goes to God in the service of God and set apart or holy has that idea of being set apart to the service of God. So in the um, first fruit offering, which is mentioned in Numbers 15, 19 through 20, we read, it shall be that when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift up an offering to the Lord of the first of your dough. Up arkin is first or first fruits, 
of the dough. Farama indicates the dough. The first of the dough. Both of those terms are used in um, Romans eleven six. The first fruit is is aparkin, and lump is farama. Okay, so it's the same terminology. You'll take the first of your dough, and you shall lift up a cake as an offering or a loaf of bread uh, as an offering. As the offering of the threshing floor, so you shall lift it up. So let's just think a little bit about this imagery here. The imagery isn't talking about salvation. The imagery is talking about the fact that you have an entity, the dough, and the, the which and, and you're going to take the first part of it, which represents the first initial part of the harvest, and this is going to be uh, set apart to the Lord. And so the emphasis here is that uh, the the whole of the of the dough, the whole of the grain, is set apart on the basis of this first little small part. And so because the first part is set apart, it sanctifies the whole. So if the first part is set apart and is holy, set apart to God, the lump is also holy. That's all we have with that imagery. The part that is set apart to God, by the fact that it's set apart to God, the rest is set apart to God. It has an impact on the rest. Now we shift gears now. We begin the the focus on the tree. If the root is holy, if the root is set apart, now you think about a tree. Well, I'll have put a picture of a tree up here in a minute. Think about a tree, and the tree is a root system that's underground, and that root is what brings uh, food and nourishment up into the tree. Now the root is set apart to God. Now, is the root salvation? No. Because that would mean that all the branches are, would automatically get saved. You have another problem. If you identify the root as salvation, in the illustration, Paul's going to say, and you break off some branches. So if they're already saved and you break them off, does that mean they lose their salvation? And then others later on, he warns that, that at some time in the future, God may remove the wild olive branches, the Gentiles. Does that mean they lose their salvation? This is a focus on individual. That's where it, it falls apart. So what we're talking about here is, is the root. And what happens in this figure of the root that, uh, that is said to be holy or sanctified and it sets apart something larger that the root is used metaphorically in Scripture to refer to the origin or ancestry of something. For example, uh, you talked about the root of Jesse, Jesse being the father of David, David being the head of the, the Davidic line that culminates in the in the um, uh, in the line of Christ, the stump of Jesse, the, the the root. So the root refers to the forefathers. So when we look at the, the idea in terms of how the word root is used metaphorically in Scripture, the, the root represents the forefathers. It represents the, um, the patriarchs. It represents Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what sets them apart is that God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. He confirmed it again with Isaac, and he confirmed it again with Jacob. 
So God is true to his promises. He sets the nation apart because of what he did uh, with the fathers. Now, we're in Romans 11, so I want you to just uh, skim down uh, your page, and we'll look at, I think I lost the verse, um, uh, verse 28, concerning the gospel, enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, now what election would that be? To salvation? No. It's talking about election of Israel to a place of blessing. In regard to election, they're beloved for the sake of their fathers. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here we have a confirmation within the text that the root is related to the patriarchs, to the, to the fathers. And so if the root is set apart, so are the branches because the branches come from the roots. Now here we have a picture in Romans eleven seventeen. I found this picture of branches that have been grafted into a an olive tree. Now on the next slide, this is kind of a fun slide. I was driving through Norwich, Connecticut one spring when the cherry trees were in blossom. And this is out in front of the, I think it was the First Congregational Church in Norwich. And somebody had taken some red cherry blossoms and grafted them into a white cherry blossom tree. So you see, that's all one tree. You had part of the tree was red and most of the tree was white. And I thought, wow, that's a great illustration. So I went home, got my camera and came back to get a picture of this because with the flowers and everything, it's a lot more easy to see the difference than I found some pictures on the Internet of wild olive branches grafted in, and you can't really tell the difference. But here you can see a vivid imagery of how grafting takes place. It all feeds, they all feed off of the same root system. And what did God tell Abraham? God said, through you all the world will be blessed. It is through the root, one single root system that blesses both Jews and Gentiles. And so that's what we see depicted here. So what Paul is saying in verse 17, some of the branches, not all of them, are broken off. So he's not talking about, um, it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about the removal of Israel for a period of time and replaced temporarily by a wild olive branches that are grafted in and with them become a, became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree so that both become beneficiaries of the blessing. That's which is what I've said has been going on all along is God is saying that he's, he's removing Israel from the place of primary place of blessing and bringing in the Gentiles. And then when the age of the Gentiles, the, the times of the Gentiles rather, when the times of the Gentiles end, then Israel is grafted back in. The natural branches are grafted back in. Romans eleven seventeen, he says, and if, and this is a first class condition, which means if, and we're assuming it would be true, and if, 
And it's true that some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them you became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Okay, we see that the root equals the patriarchs. Broken off is simply removed from blessing. It's not a loss of salvation. And grafted in is being put back in a place of blessing. He says, don't boast against the branches. Gentiles, don't look over there and think that you're somehow superior to Jews. Don't get sucked into some sort of Christian anti-Semitism, which sadly characterized too much of church history. Don't get sucked into some sort of Christian anti-Semitism, thinking that somehow you're better than the Jews because you figured out that Jesus was the Messiah and they didn't. Well, a lot of Gentiles haven't figured out that Jesus is the Messiah either. There were a tremendous number of Jews during the life of Christ and during the early church in Israel that did accept Jesus as the Messiah. But there were, and there were a lot that didn't. The the leadership and the majority probably didn't, but just because the majority didn't doesn't mean that the minority was a small uh, percentage. So Paul reminds them that you Gentiles, we Gentiles, don't support the root. We are in our position of blessing because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're supported by that root, which is the Abrahamic covenant and the promise of God to bring blessing to the Gentiles through the descendants of Abraham, um, Isaac, and Jacob. So don't say, he says there in verse 19, you will say then, that is in the hypothesis, hypothetical scenario, where the Gentiles being arrogant towards the Jews, you will say, well, broken, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. I must be better than you. Well, 1120, Paul recognizes that, well, there may be some truth there because Gentiles did respond to the gospel more than Jews did, but they were broken off because of unbelief, not because of superior, inherent superiority among the Gentiles. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, but, and you stand by faith. So he brings it back to the issue of faith, non-meritorious faith. It's not something that you can boast about because it's not something in you. It is the object of faith. It is uh, trusting in Christ. He's the object of faith. So don't be haughty. Don't give in to arrogance, but rather give in to fear. That is submission to God's authority. And he's going to explain that even more. In verse 21, he says, For... If God did not spare, that's a first-class condition, and yes, God did not spare the net. Just because they were Jewish and descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't mean that God wouldn't bring them under divine discipline and divine judgment. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. If you become self-satisfied and you reject uh God's plan, and you become arrogant, then God will bring judgment upon you as Gentiles and remove Gentiles from that place of priority. Therefore, he says, consider, that is, think about this, reckon this, reflect upon this, consider the goodness and the severity of God. Now, the word severity is a Greek word which indicates rigor or consistency. It's not that God is a harsh judge and a mean disciplinarian. 
The emphasis is that God is consistent with his righteousness. He's going to be the righteous judge. And so we need to recognize that if God in his righteousness brought judgment upon the people that he loved, the people that he uh, brought into existence through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people that he calls the apple of his eye in the Old Testament, if he in his righteousness brought discipline and judgment upon them, then the implication is why wouldn't he bring it upon us? So God is good and he is um, consistent with his righteousness. On those who fell, that is, on those who rejected him, God brings his severity, his judgment, his uh, consistent uh, judgment upon them. But toward you, that is, you Gentiles who believed goodness, and that continues if you continue in his goodness. The implication there is, but their judgment will come if you reject God's grace. Then, otherwise, he says, you also will be cut off. Talking to them as a group, not saying you as an individual, but in terms of the corporate entity of the church. The implication, there's almost a warning that at one point the church will apostatize and there will be judgment upon upon the church, upon Gentiles, and God will shift the plan back to Israel. Come to verse 23. And they also, who does the they describe? Third person, plural pronoun. Who does the they? Hmm? Let's go back. Therefore, consider the justice severity of God and those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his... In his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. That is, they as corporate Israel. He's not talking about the remnant, because the remnant that he talked about earlier, that's that remnant of Jews, that minority of Jews that respond to the gospel. So now he's talking about corporate Israel that has rejected the gospel. If they do not continue in their unbelief, they, corporate Israel, is going to be grafted back in and brought back into the place of blessing. For God is able to graft them in again. So this is a great verse because it shows that God's plan for Israel is that he hasn't permanently rejected them. There is a plan for their future restoration. One of the great things that happened in history after the Protestant Reformation was a rise in Britain of a movement that has come to be called British Restorationism. British Restorationism. And that is really a term that refers to what we might call proto or early Zionism. And often today we think of Zionism as simply the product of Theodore Herzl, who's considered to be the father of modern uh, modern uh, Zionism. But that's from a Jewish perspective. Actually, there were many forerunners to that, that set the stage for Theodore Herzl, one of whom was a, a, an American businessman from up in Michigan, I believe, whose name was William Blackstone. And he had a petition written that was signed by a huge number of uh, leaders and politicians in America, a petition for 
uh, I believe it was uh, uh, William Harrison. No, not William Harrison. Who's the other? Benjamin Harrison, that president at the in the in 1888 to. Uh, that the United States should support the the return of the Jews to their historic homeland. That's in 1888. Theodore Herzl doesn't hold the first Zionist Congress until 1897. He doesn't write his book Der Judenstaat or the Jewish State until uh, 1890, uh, 1894 to 1895, which is it's kind of the birth the, the the benchmark for the beginning of Jewish Zionism. In fact, one of the early Supreme Court judges—he was later—he was later um, um, elevated to the Supreme Court by uh, <clears throat> President Franklin Roosevelt. But one of the early judges that was one of the early presidents of the American Zionist organization was Louis Brandeis, and he was a very strong Zionist and advocate for Israel, very well known, uh, for whom Brandeis University is named, and Brandeis. Uh, said in a speech that Theodore Herzl did not found Zionism. That honor goes to William Blackstone, who was a Christian. And his love for Israel was because he, he read and understood what was going on in Romans uh, chapter 11. And so you had this great movement that really began in Britain, but it had uh, different parts in different areas of uh of Europe, there were some Lutherans in Sweden, some Lutherans in Germany, uh, some others. And after the Reformation, there were there were Anabaptist groups that came along. Also, that the more consistently they interpreted the the Scripture, the more they began to realize that the term Israel meant Israel meant the Jewish people. It didn't mean the church, and the church wasn't a code name for uh, it, you know spiritual Israel from the Old Testament. That Israel meant Israel, and 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 inter- began to interpret passages like this as indicating that there that God was going to restore the Jewish people to their historic homeland. And then they read and they began to develop their understanding of prophecy, and they began to realize that that God would restore Israel to the to their land and give them a kingdom, and that. The end times, the return of Jesus would would coincide with this res- restoration of the Jewish people to their land. But it wasn't just Christians that were coming to understand this. There were some Jews who came to understand this as well. Often today in the arguments and discussions that go on and sort of the fear factor that comes out of the Jewish community towards Christians is that, well, the only reason Christians want us to get back into the land is because they think that if they get us all back into the land, Jesus will come back, and then Jesus is going to kill all the Christians. And that's just nonsense. Uh, no Christian has ever be- Christians believe that when Jesus comes back, there, there's going to be a restoration of the Jewish people to the land. But the restoration of the Jewish people to the land does not cause the return of Jesus. They're, they're uh, connected events, but not a cause-effect uh, event. And so, uh, and, and there were different people. In fact, in the in the 20th century, there were a lot of. Excuse me, in the 19th century, there were a, the, the, a lot of the British restorationists were or either post-millennial or amillennial. It didn't really come out of a pre, necessarily a premillennial view, even though there were a lot of premillennials at the time. It wasn't necessarily related to any kind of view of prophecy. Is what the point I'm making? They they weren't motivated by the same 
prophetic timetable. In fact, they had more of a historicist view of premillennialism than a futurist view. A futurist would mean that we interpret all the uh, all, all the prophecies in Scripture as being future, and all of Revelation as being future. A historicist would look at maybe Romans, I mean, excuse me, Revelation seven, and say, "Well, that was in the Middle Ages. Revelation eight, that's at this later time. Revelation twelve, that's about where we are today." They try to find where we are today in terms of the signs of the times and that sort of thing. And most Zionists were that kind of premillennialist. Most Christian Zionists were historicist premillennialists. They weren't dispensational uh, futurist uh, premills. In fact, uh, that's why the historicist premills were a lot more active in trying to set the stage for Jews to go back to the land because in some sense they, they those groups did feel like the Jews kind of needed to be back there and that would set the stage and Jesus would come back. So we're going to help it along. But even though they tried to help it along for many times, it didn't happen until God was ready to start allowing uh, different things to take place that, that moved the timetable along. And so what we see is that when God is ready, he starts the movement in history. But it actually starts like in the mid-1600s when you had a Jewish rabbi by the name of uh, Manasseh ben Israel who believed that as he read the Old Testament he and he read Daniel, studied Daniel, he said, you know, the Messiah can't come until the Jews get back in the land. And he got that from Deuteronomy and he got it from Isaiah and he got it from Daniel. Uh, he's not thinking in terms of Christianity, but he was saying the same thing that some of the Christians were saying, and so they were able to mutually support one another in bringing the Puritan government under Cromwell to a realization that they needed to allow Jews back into England because under Edward uh, II they had been expelled from England, and even though there were a few of the Murano Jews, that is Jews that had apparently or or made a made a uh, uh, superficial conversion to Christianity and still practiced Judaism in secret had come from Spain and from Europe, even though there were some Muranos in in England, uh, you didn't have very many Jews in England at all. And it was due to the pressure of Puritans who were coming to a realization that, that God had a future plan for his people Israel and uh, Manasseh bin Israel that put pressure. In fact, Cromwell invited Manasseh bin Israel to come and to uh, spend time with him, and he addressed uh, some of the uh, uh, Puritan leaders from, from the uh, parliament. And this put pressure on the leaders of England. They didn't have an official, uh, they didn't have an official policy to let the Jews back in because there was another problem with that. That is, if you let the Jews in and you're going to tolerate them, then how are we going to tolerate the other heretics? And they didn't want to tolerate Christian heretics, but they knew they needed to let the Jews back in because they were God's people. So they sort of had a backdoor reversal of the policy. They said, you know, let, let's sort of rewrite history a little bit. We're going to call Edward II's law an executive action. And that only applied then, so it really doesn't apply now. So they just kind of winked at it and let the Jews come back in. And within another 20 years, there were open synagogues 
in in London, and from there the Jewish community really flowered and grew within England. And that laid the foundation for what became known as full-bore British Restorationism by the late 1700s and 1800s. God is able to graft them in again. Then he goes on to explain this in verse 24, and he says, For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, so if you're a wild olive branch, and you're grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? uses what's called an a fortiori argument or an argument from strength. And he says, um, this wild olive, these, these cult, if the wild olive branches can be grafted in and, and that produces fruit, how much more easy is it if natural branches from a natural olive tree are grafted back in? That's just the normal way things are. So that's what he's saying. He said, if God is going to restore Israel, that's the natural, normal way so that when natural branches are grafted into their own olive tree, certainly they'll take hold and produce fruit. goes on to say in verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Now, the word mystery is a word that doesn't refer to a whodunit, not some riddle you have to figure out, but the word mystery describes previously unknown revelation. So in the Old Testament, God did not let it be known that in the future Israel would reject the Messiah and there would be a time of blessing, a parenthesis there, between the first and second coming. If God had said, see, you're going to reject the Messiah, then they wouldn't really know and have a free will choice when the Messiah came. They would just say, well, that's what God said we'd do, so that's what we did. But they had no idea what was going to happen. They had a true choice. But God knew what would happen, that they would choose to reject Christ. And so he says, this is the mystery that was not revealed in the Old Testament, that Israel would be removed from the place of blessing and then restored to the place of blessing. So he says, um, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part... That's referring to a large group of the uh, of Israel. That is the lump, not the first fruit. That is the the, the the branches taken off, not the root. That there is a blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, this is an interesting little Greek phrase here, "akris u," that I've emphasized that last line there. It doesn't mean like, I'm going to work until 5 o'clock or, and then just stop and everything sort of stops. The, it has an implication, and that is that, that it doesn't just look at the end time, but it looks at the fact that when that end time comes, things are going to change. There's going to be a, a transformation of things. It's looking at what happens after that terminal point. And so it's saying that that a blindness has come to Israel until the fullness has come in, and the implication from that preposition there is that after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, the blindness disappears from Israel, and they'll receive sight. He's going to go on to explain that, but that's the implication from the grammar. 
Now let me show you some other places where uh, this is used in, in the same way. In Luke 1.20, uh, the angel is telling Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, that because he questioned the angel's announcement that Elizabeth was going to give birth, he was going to be struck speechless until John the Baptist was born. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place. Implication is you're going to be able to speak after that. See, the emphasis isn't just on the end point. It's on that then things are going to go back or they're going to change. They'll be back the way the way they were. Matthew 24, 38, Jesus is talking about how, uh, using the flood as an illustration of uh, the the um, normative normative life in the tribulation period. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. What happened then? Then they quit getting married. They quit eating and having parties. Why? Because they were dead. Everything changed. First Corinthians eleven twenty six. We celebrate the Lord's death in the Lord's table till he comes. But once he comes, we don't do that anymore. There's a change in circumstance, and there'll be a new set of circumstances, a reversal of those conditions after that point in time. And so that's what he, what he says in, uh, in verse 25, um, that until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then there's this, uh, something new will come in, Israel won't be blind. And so, he says, all Israel will be saved as it is written. Now, what's interesting is this word, and so. It's the same word we have in John 3.16, which everybody here ought to know. For God so loved the world. That's that word, so. Now, some people want to translate that, for God loved the world so much. That isn't what it says. It's this word hutas means in such a way. Now, sometimes it can refer to something in the previous verse, but most of the time it refers to in this manner I'm about to tell you, or as we say in Texas, this way I'm fixing to tell you. Okay, In this way that I'm about to describe, this is how this takes place. So Romans 11.26, Paul is saying, and in this manner... All Israel will be saved. Now, it's it's not talking about justification because the point that is described here doesn't go back to the cross. It looks forward to the second coming. The word saved, as we've seen, doesn't refer to individual justification in Romans. It refers a lot of times to phase three ultimate deliverance or to physical deliverance, sometimes to spiritual life. So what we read in Romans 11.26 is, see, we're talking about corporate Israel. Corporate Israel is not in the place of blessing. They're going to be brought back into blessing. Well, how's that going to happen? He says this is how it's going to happen. The deliverer will come out of Zion. This is a second coming passage. The, the Messiah will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant, he says, with them when I take away their sins. That's not talking about the cross. That's talking about when God establishes his covenant with them. What covenant is that? That's the new covenant. And this is seen because the, the language here in Romans eleven twenty six and 27 comes out of three verses in the Old Testament, Isaiah 59, 20, and 21, and then Isaiah 27, 9. Isaiah 59.20 says, The Redeemer will come to Zion 
and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. He's coming to deliver them. And then the next verse really clinches it. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth. This is when God in the new covenant pours out his spirit upon Israel at the second coming. And Isaiah 27, 9 says, Therefore by this the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. So it's talking about the national deliverance and the national uh, salvation of Israel, not individual Jews getting saved, but the corporate or national deliverance that comes when the nation accepts Christ nationally. See, they rejected him nationally back in 33. Doesn't mean every single Jew was unsaved, but as a nation, they had a national sin. That national sin has to be dealt with. And this national sin is dealt with when they repent, they call upon the name of the Lord, and then the Lord comes to deliver them in the second coming. Okay, then we come to verses 28 and 29, which say concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. That is, they've rejected the gospel right now. So they're, they're enemies. There's a hostility between Jew and Gentile. Uh, there are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, that is their choice in terms of God's choice of Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. That connects back to the root in the olive tree. Why? For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You've heard that verse so many times, and you try to apply that. It's, I usually hear it applied to, to like spiritual gifts. There may be an implication there, but he's talking here about God's call for Israel and God's covenant with Israel is irrevocable. God's not going to go back on it. This whole thing is tied up with the fact when God makes promises and he gives you and me promises in his word to take care of us, to sustain us, to strengthen us, to help us, that God does not go back on those promises. They are his, they are ours irrevocably. We'll come back next time and look at verse 30 and following to get into the rest of this chapter. The closing part is a tremendous uh, uh, praise to God and focus upon uh, the, the wisdom and the knowledge of God's plan. And that also brings us to an end with of our section of Romans 9 to 11. And it also brings us to an end to the uh, in, more of the instructional part of Romans, because starting in Romans 12, Paul shifts to something that is a, a, a little the application of what he's taught in Romans 1 to 11. So we'll get to that uh, next time. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. We pray for each of us that we might be faithful and diligent in our study of your word and applying it, realizing that so many things in life matter, but nothing matters like our relationship with you. Nothing matters like our walk with you because you are the one who guides us and strengthens us and sustains us. Now, Father, I just pray that as we uh, continue to study these things and we continue to focus on your word, that we might be a real light uh, to those around us and might be an example to sustain others because of your grace and your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.